From the Goldfarb Library at Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast dedicated to making sense of contemporary problems by activating writing and thinking from the past. We believe you can only notice what is exceptional and unprecedented in the present if you take a hard look at what's gone before. You could say we look backward to see into the future. Over the next half hour, we'll explore a couple of works in depth, works on paper and also uh, artistic works, which may also be on paper or on canvas, and we'll also conclude by pointing you towards further reading on the topic. Recall this book is hosted today by Elizabeth Ferry, an anthropologist now writing about gold in Colombia and Mexican mining and in finance. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello. And by me, John Plotz, a professor of Victorian literature, currently writing a very non-Victorian history of science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and today, we're joined, yay, by our Brandeis colleague, the artist Tori Fair, uh, who is a professor and a Waltham-based sculptor who's recently been looking back at some pioneering post-minimalist sculptors from the 70s. Welcome, Tori. Glad to be here. Awesome. Okay, so, introduction to minimalism. Uh, the Tate Gallery helpfully explains that minimalism or minimalist art can be seen as extending the abstract idea that art should have its own reality and not be an imitation of some other thing. Minimalist painter Frank Stella famously said about his paintings, what you see is what you see. And uh, I think, though, Tori, you're going you're gonna to educate me on this. When I think of minimalism, I think of those beautiful cubes of Donald Judd or those remarkable metal plates of Carl Andre with names like steel zinc plane that just lie on the ground inviting people to walk on them. But I also think of the way that the term minimalism, which I discovered was originally uh, coined by Richard Wolheim as an insult, um, has been taken up in walks of life ranging from home decor to contemplative practice. Might living a minimalist life mean having fewer pieces of, pieces of furniture or fewer so-called friends or maybe a freer life or a purified soul? And then in the other corner, finally, there's literary minimalism, which lacks a stable definition. So some people will conscript Ernest Hemingway's de-adjectivalized prose, I guess, um, for minimalism. And other people will look to Samuel Beckett, who has a more conceptual uh, vision of what the minimal is. Um, but all of that, uh, I think, is really just to say, Tori, can you start us off by talking about a favorite piece of minimalist art and what you learn by thinking about it? Yes, thank you. I um, wanted to talk about two different pieces, and the first one is Agnes Martin. I saw a show of her paintings in the late 90s, and when I walked into the room and I was surrounded by her work, I had this sensation that I was levitating ever so slightly, but it really felt like when I walked into the room, I became a little lighter. Um, it was definitely, it, it was a little unexpected to have such a physical response. The paintings are made through a repetition of marks, and when you go up closer, you see that it's actually the artist's hand that is making this repetition of mark over and over, horizontally, very slightly. And another experience that I wanted to talk about was the experience of visiting Donald Judd's pieces in Marfa. You brought up his cubes. In one building, a group of meticulously made cube fabrications filled up the room, and there was no trace of hand. And in some ways, the room was very cold because it was, they were all made of metal and they were very reflective. But you're surrounded by the desert, and the work kind of confused what was inside and what was outside, as the cubes themselves were really very reflective. There was infinite desert with very measured form. So the pieces felt very expansive, and it was hard to know where they began and where they ended, and very 
it was a very confounding experience, very rational yet very irrational in some ways. So I picked these two minimalists because, as you said, the work is self-referential, made from straightforward materials, no image, no narrative. But in common, I think, was an opportunity for me as the viewer to experience something very determined. So somehow minimalism really confronts you to see what is there. No illusions, no tricks, no abstract expression, but rather direct experience. So, Tori, that makes a lot of sense to me, but I also feel like you're describing uh, two different things, and I'd love to hear you kind of tease out how they relate to each other. Because on the one hand, you're talking about um, the directness of the piece as a piece, like that you are you know, you're, you're in the presence of something. But on the other hand, you're talking about that notion of your own bodily response to it. So are those, in, like in my mind, those are two different things. One of them is the experience. I, I would be tempted to call it subjective, like from a literary perspective. And then the other is feeling the object outside yourself. But it sounds to me like you're connecting those two. Well, I guess I'm an artist, so I'm talking from the point of view that as an artist, I choose the decisions I make. I choose... How much hand do I let the viewer see? In Agnes Martin's case, she let a little bit of her hand in. In Donald Judd's piece, of course, he was trying to take away that kind of expression. So I do think that one of the things I'm interested in about minimalism is that by reducing things and taking some of the hand out and determining things with materials that were a little more accessible, they actually open up an experience for the viewer to come in and approach the piece on their own terms. So I have a question. Maybe it's a provocative question or not. What you're describing as the subjective or embodied experience, the encounter between art and the viewer or participant, the collaboration, seems like it could be a definition of all kinds of different art. So, but there's something, you're, you're describing something specific about minimalism with respect to this. So, so one possibility might be, is it that this kind of paring down and restraint allows you to be aware of that experience more? Would that be a difference between minimalism and some other, some painting that I look at and I want to cry or feel really happy or um, get a chill down my spine? Well, I think one thing that distinguishes the minimalists is that they were trying to set up a situation where the viewer wasn't looking at the piece and seeing that it was a piece of artwork, like they weren't admiring the artwork. It was more of a direct experience in terms of cutting down the anticipation of what artwork should be. Um, also, this is coming after the ab ab abstract expressionists, so that they were definitely moving away from the romantic notion of the artist as author as... Right, but they're not the only ones who are doing that. Absolutely. Right. Um, I mean, I think this idea of sort of making the... I think of the notion of connecting the dots or the idea of a story or a work of art where much of it is below the surface, right? That's sometimes a, a metaphor that people use for minimalism. Calls up this idea or it, it uh, makes me think about 
the idea that the viewer, in this case, is being asked to do more of the work. They're sort of being asked to meet the work of art halfway or more than halfway. Well, I think that would be a bad piece of art. You yeah. Know? Really? I think that I think those that's so interesting yeah. that you would say that. Yeah, wow. Why? Well, I think that's that like the, on the cooking shows when they say, <laughs> "Oh, dang. well, when you look at that dessert, it, it it allows the it allows the diner to decide." And I mean that in a bad way. <laughs> You're basically saying when we decide, that's that's a failure of the artwork. Well, I, I, maybe I should say I think that the artist has to determine exactly what they want to do to provide an experience. Those Donald Judd pieces, say the plywood pieces, they're made out of plywood, but they're beveled and put together in such extreme care that it's not about... Well, I don't mean that they're, the artist isn't doing any work. Uh, I mean, maybe our definitions of work are different, right? So when I'm saying it, I'm not meaning, oh, my five-year-old could do that, just lay some planks on the floor. But... So, so we mentioned Hemingway before. Ernest Hemingway won a $10 bet by producing the shortest possible story. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. Now that's a story that depends on the reader connecting the dots, filling in the parts that are not said. Um, it doesn't mean that, the, that Hemingway isn't working to make that story. I think that story is actually pretty... And I'm actually—I don't even really like Hemingway, but, but um, in this case, I think that story is extreme. There's a lot of work that goes into it, but the reader has to do a lot of work too. But I think I agree with Tori on that story. Mm -hmm. I, we, we could maybe take another pass at this, but on on that, uh, Tori, tell me if I understand you correctly. Basically, of course, the reader has to do a lot of work there in terms of the story of the, you know, like the, why, right? Yeah, right. At the most simplest, um, simplest right. level. Right, but but the work is already all encoded in those six words. Like, in other words, where we're going with that, it's not that we can do anything we want with it. It's that no. it's it's available to us, but it's only available to us with, with like one, there's only one pathway through it, which means that- Well, that might be a bad story then. <laughs> I mean, no, you could have a work of art in which there were several No, but paths. I think Tori is saying that that's actually the desired outcome because the work puts you on a path where you're gonna put your sure. feet the artist knows where you're going to put your feet in that story. Although I think that there's a moment as an artist where you determine your piece and you put it out into the world, and then it becomes open for how people want to interact with it. Right. Now, you have to control your work so that people interact with it in a way that you find expansive and accept acceptable. So I think the minimalists wanted to bring you back to the work back to the piece, back to the materials, so that it wasn't about a specific personal narrative, but it could actually inspire something personal in the viewer. So, Tori, I have a lit... So I why is that oh. different from saying, asking more from the viewer? Well, I think, that, I think that when you're going from something that's very personal to then something that's universal, I think that you're talking about the inverse, and I'm talking about the determined, the artist determines that movement. Historically, Tori, is that, those Richard Serra uh, sculptures, like the ones that fill up the plazas, do you know the ones I'm talking about? I, tilted Arc? Yes, Tilted Arc, thank you. Is that minimalism? Yes. But that's very coercive. Definitely. That piece, you're bringing up a piece that's very divisive. De 
Yeah. Ted, can but you talk about minute, it a little bit? You're opposing coercive coercion with what I was describing as the viewer doing more work, right? You're saying those are two opposed things. Yeah, exactly. But I don't thinking, agree. Okay. <laughs> I think you could coerce the viewer into doing work, right? You could coerce the viewer into being a participant, being, as you said, a collaborator in the experience. But I think the important thing is, is that as an artist, as the writer, as the author, that you are giving the ingredients so that the viewer always returns to what is in front of them. And this goes back to my instinct of the notion of like on cooking shows, I'm always amazed when they say the whole point is to have the diner just do this one thing with the plate, you know, not make a choice about where they're going to rotate it. They're just going to like take the plate and they're going to eat the way you wanted them to eat. And I, I, so that's my idiot's way into understanding what you artists are doing when you're making real art, <laughs> real non-edible art. But um, that your point is something like, the work that you do as an artist ensures that when I come to face this thing, there's only a few ways that I can approach it. Or that I don't dictate those ways, but I do dictate what I do in the artwork so right. that it becomes even more clear what you as a viewer are bringing to it. And that's clearer in minimalism than it might be in some other modes of expression. Yes, because I think in okay. other modes of expression, you're focused more on, oh, what does the artist mean by this? Where uh -huh. I think the minimalists, minimalists are confronting you with something very matter-of-fact. Mm -hmm. That you have, do I walk on these Carl Andre pieces? Mm -hmm. How do I experience them? Are they mm -hmm. art? So that it changes the habit in which you are interacting with some pretty fundamental ideas. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And that's a good connection. Like, I know, Elizabeth, we should go now to the connection you want to make. But I would just say, like, to put down a marker, that is a great connection to the minimalism of somebody like Samuel Beckett, who said that basically Joyce had gone as far as you could go uh, by way of adding. So he had to take the way of subtraction. So mm -hmm. he ends up with plays like his play Breath, which is literally just, eh, <gasps> And that's the whole play. So it's just those three <laughs> things. A cry, You've a breath, waiting. and a cry. Yeah. Would you like me to do it again? Yeah. Yes. yes. <gasps> In unison, we'll do it at yeah. the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that, that, that completely resonates with your point, which is that it forces the it forces the theater goer in that case to come directly face to face with the event or the action of the play rather than all of the layers of meaning that the author has added on top yeah, of it. Yeah, I think that yeah. makes a lot of sense. And it actually connects very well to to what I would like to talk about, which is um, maybe what you thought this podcast would be about when you when you clicked on it, which is the extremely the cent the lifestyle movement that is the center of many conversations of minimalism, right? So the text that I would like to bring in is much lower in the brow than the works that we've been discussing. <laughs> and uh, it's part of this lifestyle moment of minimalism that has 
you know, many books and blogs and websites devoted to getting rid of your stuff and arranging what is left with stylish zen or maybe hipster simplicity. I think the URL of one website, Be More With Less, sums it up. It's kind of a, mm-hmm. kind of a combination of uh, Le Corbusier and the uh, less is more and the uh, old army slogan, Be All That You Can Be. <laughs> um, and there's been a backlash to this movement, as as you you listeners, I'm sure know. Backlash takes a couple of, or the response takes a couple of forms. One is pointing out that the quantity of stuff that many minimalist sites try to get you to buy in order to simplify your life. There's a, a magazine called Real Simple Magazine, which <laughs> is almost completely an advertisement for storage uh, and cleaning <laughs> items. <laughs> Real um, simple while supplies last. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All new with added simpleness. <laughs> um, now, 15% more simple. <laughs> right. <laughs> And the other, another uh, main kind of response has to do with the kind of privilege that is necessary um, and, and social or cultural capital that is necessary to living in a tiny house or traveling the world with a tiny backpack or simply a credit card. Um, so my contribution to this conversation is the world bestseller, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up by Marie Kondo, who also has a massively successful organizing business in Japan. The book could certainly be rightly criticized for relying on privilege and also for commodifying simplicity, although I will say that she argues for using shoeboxes instead of fancy storage systems. And I wouldn't describe the book as, say, well-written or necessarily, say, good, (laughs) Um, but I'm quite fond of it, and I got fonder of it as I was um, reading it. And I think that it points to some of these questions of the experience between um, humans and stuff that maybe has something in common with what we're discussing with these other kinds of um, texts. Um, it proposes uh, the, the premise, the underlying premise of the book is that minimalism, getting rid of three quarters of your stuff, say, um, alters your relationship between uh, people and your things. Um, and there's a kind of animism anthropomorphism, but maybe even animism uh, that's sort of um, woven into this. So as, as those of you who have read the book or read about it know that she, she um, recommends that you hold each object to see if it sparks joy, that you thank each thing in your uh, house before you get rid of it, so also that you thank your socks after at the end of the day for for taking care oh, of your Oh, I already feet. do that. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. They you're, are you're the object. I am by far the most grateful to socks of any object in my life. There you go. For sure. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of pleasing homey animism to this. And but I would say also an attention to the bare bones of object as object and the elimination of distractions so as to better communicate with things. Um, I did want to write, uh, just to give you a quote, this will kind of give you a sense of the voice of it too, which, which is, I think, part of it. Um, this is in the chapter called How to Fold. Folding goes even more smoothly if you fold thin, soft material more tightly, reducing it to a small width and height, and thick, fluffy materials less. There's nothing more satisfying than finding the sweet spot. The piece of clothing keeps its shape when stood on edge and feels just right when held in your hand. It's like a sudden revelation. So this is how you always wanted to be folded. A historical moment in which your mind and the piece of clothing connect. 
There really is nothing more satisfying. I can't think of anything more satisfying in life <laughs> yes. than that. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it sound great, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. She has a whole discussion of how, how she uh, she threw out basically all of her family's possessions. And uh-huh. she kept, so just, just go into their closet and throw stuff out and probably they'll never notice. Right. And if they do, you can always deny <laughs> it's, it. It's, it's better to <laughs> seek forgiveness than permission. <laughs> right. And, uh, and then at the end, she kind of says, well, I sort of learned that your family gets pretty mad at you if you do that. So maybe it's not a good idea. <laughs> but I do think that the... You know, what she's trying to get at is making your experience of life more something, more pure. more. Mm-hmm. So I think that, like, I think it's really funny to think about that in terms of Donald Judd, you mm-hmm. know, the minimalist trying to heighten a certain experience uh, of your body in space around the right. material. So right. I think that... I think that thinking of the yeah, viewer... Although John, Donald Judd would hate that, probably, but... <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, Wait, but, yeah. say, but say more, because to me it does seem really different. I mean, because this seems like a very um, instrumental or utilitarian relationship to things. Like, in other words, you're talking about the things that come to life because they are of use to you. You're talking about the things no, that are surrounded... No, they spark joy. That's her, that's her criteria. But don't they... Mm. But everything that you've described sounds like an interaction. I mean, I won't say necessarily like a consumer or capitalist interaction, but it's, you know, the objects to the extent that they're prosthetic for your life or extensions of your life or something, which seems really different from what Tori was describing because she was describing walking into these rooms and feeling like, oh, wait, here's an object that was like kind of yes, man- I agree. mandating I think those its are... own experience. Yeah. Well, I think you, you slipped Ooh, in. Oh, Tori, a... just, Tori just not, uh, shook her head at me. I well, I think wrong. you just you just said that you were that the objects, the Agnes Martin paintings, are mandating an experience, and I, it's not like mansplaining, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> because she's putting <laughs> she, she's putting it out there in a way that you come to it on your own terms. Yeah. So she's not dictating an experience; she's presenting and giving an opportunity for an experience to empty your mind and address the painting. So is the analogy, but like to take the analogy of the socks or the sweater that you fold, would you accept that that's a decent analogy? Because it seems to me the socks or the sweater are something that you've already kind of recruited to fill a particular role in your life. Whereas the art object is at least, I mean, this is why I came with the word mandating, which is maybe the wrong word, but it's like, it's, it's externalizing. It's offering you something from beyond. Like the whole point is that it isn't, like you well, go and get you socks. The, it's it's as if the the person who's living in the house is, or maybe a prior version of the person living in the house is the artist, and the person living in the trying to go through the stuff, yeah, who's the same person but later, is the viewer. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, and I would say that I'm not trying to say these are alike in every way, um, but I just find it interesting that this sort of attention to the provocation between things and people as a um, sort of elemental, pared down, kind of, in this case, sort of animated experience, there's feels like there's something interestingly aligned. Yeah, by taking away material, you actually heighten the immaterial, which is that what mm-hmm. she calls joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I'm having the opposite reaction, which is I think that it's making me – I, w- I wanted to say that I have this incredible pleasure 
in going to the museum on Sunday morning. Sometimes if everybody's sleeping in, I'll go to the museum. And my point in going to the museum, to, and Tori, sometimes I send you photos of what I discovered there, is to find something that I didn't expect to find there. Like, in other words, to go there and just have some kind of encounter in which what is... Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to come back to the idea of, like, the mandated experience. Like, what I respond to is that I walk into a room and I don't know what I'm going to feel, but that some artist has given mm -hmm. some thought uh, to the thing that's going to happen to me when I walk into that room, which is not how I feel about my socks. Because what I feel about my right, socks is... Right, but she is, would say you should feel that way about your socks, that her process of, of tidying is intended to reanimate your relationship with your things in ways that you might not expect by confronting them or by encountering them in this frame of sparking joy. Well, that that's really interesting. Actually, Beckett has something to say about that, about habit. He says that the problem is that we're continuously caught in habit, and then you need these moments that push you outside of habit. Mm -hmm. But the distinction that Beckett makes, and actually Wittgenstein makes this distinction too, he says that the difference is that an artwork requires you to be taken out of your habit, whereas other things you can kind of, you know, you can arrive at that. You can gin yourself up for it. Like if sure. I come to my socks with the right attitude, right, I can de-sockify them. Right. Or, or ultra-sockify them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's their essential sockness that is potentially Yeah, except I guess I'm pushing to... back on that and saying that their essential sockness is more like habitual, like... The thing that's really essential about them is that you went and bought them because you knew that they were going to provide this spongy, sweat-absorbing facility that you need <laughs> at the end of a long day. Um, in other words, the essentialness, the essential part is not the strangeness, it's the familiarity. But isn't that also true with other kinds of... I mean, when you talk about plywood that's on the ground, right, it's partly the encounter with the usual that's being reconfigured in a new way, right? And by design, the yeah. minimalist wanted to actually take that Sunday morning self that goes to the museum and wants to be somehow entertained and say, no, like, <laughs> let's, you can do better. Like, you can find an aesthetic experience in a more common place. So, okay, except for quarreling about the word entertain, because I don't think what I was saying is that <laughs> I wanted to be entertained. I was saying that I wanted to be estranged. Or sorry, sorry. I was, yeah. I was mandating yes. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, well, duly mandated. But um, that, that is incredibly interesting. But then that raises the possibility that minimalist art is at its best when it's heading towards its own disappearance. Is that what you're saying? Like if Donald, like in other words, that the Donald Judd, the point of the Donald Judd is not we should always go back and look at those cubes, but that the effect of looking at the cubes is that you're now able to just look at plywood and be like, oh, cool. Well, that's one of the Minimal. effects, right? That you're supposed to look at the world in a new way because you've been asked to, to experience it, not just in this. So then is the object sense, itself unnecessary? Right? You just need to have that experience once, and then after that you're kind of done with it? Well... I'm going to go to Marfa, and then I'm going to go, and yeah. I'm going to fold my shirt. Yeah. Yes. And I'm going to talk to my socks. <laughs> yes. And, no, but I, I do think that connecting the um, more elite kind of idea of what art is and bringing it down to folding socks, it's kind of an interesting way of trying to, again, like the, um, what's that magazine called? 
uh, real, real simple. simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the commodification of that is another thing, but the idea, I think I wanted to talk about my experience because I think it is about inspiring yourself to own up to your own experience and not have someone else tell you what your experience mm -hmm. is. Which is kind of what I meant by work at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. I think that actually, believe it or not, brings us to the final portion of this podcast, recallable books. And I have to say, for this episode, we're not going to just say recallable books. We're going to say recallable art. So, Tori, what book or artwork are you going to urge our listeners to recall from the library or go to see or buy? So I thought about this. Uh, I'm going to recommend Daybook, The Journal of an Artist by Anne Truitt. And urge you to go to Dia and see her show right now because there's an amazing show and you can buy the book in the bookstore. Excellent. Um, what is Dia? Dia is a museum in New York, in Hudson, New York. Cool. Thank and you. when is the show <laughs> and when is the show up until? Check our know. website. Check our website for further <laughs> details. Tell us, Tori, give us one more sentence on what that book is like. Well, I think you see an artist. I think in the book you get to see an artist think about a larger tra trajectory of her own work and where she came into her real life's work and her vision that is on view right now in the show. Awesome. That sounds great. Okay, and I'm going to recommend uh, Aesop's Fables um, because we didn't talk a lot about literary minimalism, but I love the reduced quality of those fables. And I'm, I'm going to actually add a kind of maximal plug, which is that you should read the Laura Gibbs translation from Oxford World Classics, because what she does is dissect those tiny stories by breaking down the relationship between the story, that is the events they describe, and then the moral. And she makes the point that sometimes the moral comes at the beginning, sometimes it comes in the middle, and sometimes it comes at the end, and the sequence really matters. And I'm just gonna read one, because I love the way that she breaks it down. So what is probably the oldest of the Aesop's fables was in Hesiod, and it comes from, so that's the eighth century BC. So Aesop's fables were collected um, probably starting in the 3rd century BC, but this particular story is from the 8th century. This is how the hawk addressed the dapple-throated nightingale as he carried her high into the clouds, holding her tightly in his talons. As the nightingale sobbed pitifully, pierced by the hawk's crooked talons, the hawk pronounced these words of power, wretched creature, what are you prattling about? You are in the grip of one who is far stronger than you, and you will go wherever I may lead you, even if you are a singer. You will be my dinner, if that's what I want, or I might decide to let you go. It is a foolish man who thinks he can oppose people who are more powerful than he is. He will be defeated in the contest, suffering both pain and humiliation. Um, Wow, talk, Dang, about, that's talk, the talk about mandating, <laughs> I know. So the thing that Laura Gibbs says is that you can't tell whether those last two lines are something that the hawk is saying to the nightingale or whether they're the moral. So she talks about the way in which the voice either belongs inside the story or mm -hmm. at the edge of the story. And that, I think, is amazing. That's minimalism for me. Um, okay, Can thank you do the uh, play again to close us out? The oh, can I do the play? Yes. Of course. Can yes. we all do it together? Yes. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Ah! <gasps> ah! Okay. From Brandeis Library, that is Recall This Book. 
Uh, thank you so much, Elizabeth, as my co-host, and thank you, Tori Fair, for joining us. Well, this book is The Brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry, and it's affiliated with public books and recorded and edited in the media lab of the Brandeis Library by Plotz Ferry and a cadre of colleagues here in the Boston area and beyond. Sound editing is by Anil Tripathi in the Anthropology Department and production assistance, including website design and social media, is the bailiwick of Matthew Schratz from the English Department. Mark Delello advises on all technological matters. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via Twitter or on our Facebook page and website, where you also find li- will you- where you also find links to the text discussed today and suggestions for further reading and listening. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, and share the episode with your friends via social media or however else you do that. From Recall This Book, this is John Plotz along with Elizabeth Ferry and Tori Fair. Remember, if you like what you heard today, head off to your local library, bookstore, or internet repository to read the book. Mm-hmm.